Go ahead, pull the trigger. End my life. Welcome to the Whovian Review. I am Michael. I'm Shelby. And I am Colin. And tonight we're going to dive into the season 25 story, The Happiness Patrol. Oh man, we're going back in time. This is a classic. Another, you know, fantastic 80s episode. Sylvester McCoy. Sylvester McCoy. And as I was uh, about to tell you before we got to the podcast, I, I think this cements the idea that Sylvester McCoy's acting works best when he's not shouty. He does so much better with those intense, severe moments or those intense um, moments where he's talking to Ace. Uh, and he's just, it's more contemplative. And I think that's where Sylvester shines. Yeah, he has I a tendency agree. to overact, and he was toned down in this episode. Honestly, it seems like, and maybe you can say this is true with a lot of doctors, but it seems like it's true for him. Like, it's a lot of his value is in, like, the foil of, you know, what he is to, you know, his adversary and to his companions, you know, at, at times. But I think that's where it shines the most for him. We are also jumping into the Andrew Cartmel plan with this new season of Doctor Who where they wanted to go for a much darker, much, uh, much more sophisticated and more adult kind of uh, overall arcing theme throughout the program. I think it was a good move. Which really changed things up because season 24, which we did recently, um, that that's known as the worst season of Doctor Who for good reason. Um, the stories were lighthearted or, or really awful, really stupid. Yeah, and, and this we need to go, you know, uh, dark and more real and adult-like with clowns and candy. <laughs> well, but these are sinister, and and there's yeah, also a lot of sinister clowns and candy. I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, saying that they are. I mean, I I loved it. The whole like clown <laughs> motif with the face painting and the hair, and then like how you know whatever. Helen A, like, mm -hmm. her hair was red, and she had, like, all of her subordinates' hair were, like, diminishing pink. colors of pink, depending yes. on how they ranked. <laughs> yeah. And and it was an interesting ranking system, because you, you, the last letter that you were assigned kind of showed where you were in the hierarchy. So, and like, Harold B was unfortunate. He was way down at the bottom. Although, I, I think it's less of a, you know, hierarchy and more of a hierarchy. Oh, jeez. <laughs> or a letterarchy. Some of both. Some of both. Yeah, but this had a really good dystopian uh, society where where you basically have almost it's kind of like the British, uh, where they come into a land and they colonize it. They they kind of subdue the inhabitants that are there, and in this case, the pipe dwellers. 
um, who were the original uh, natives of this planet, Terra Alpha. And, and like impossible to understand what they were saying and irrelevant to the plot. True, and that was one downfall of this episode. One like, of them. why were they there? Well, they had to have an inhabitant that was that was there that was kind of subdued or why like, oppressed. Why couldn't those people I have mean, come there to are it? People that were oppressed already. Yeah, like they could True. have just come to an you know an uninhabited planet and built this society. I mean, it was interesting, but honestly, like I came away, I was like, did I miss like an important detail? You know, why <laughs> then we're here? Like, what was what was happening? Well, there, I think there's the notes of satire in this, where it's kind of taking the British society and, and Helena kind of represents the. Margaret Thatcher, who was the prime minister at the time, and and they, it was just kind of that kind of motif that they were trying to um, kind of mimic, in a sense. And it's funny because the actress who played Helena absolutely loathed um, that prime minister, <laughs> Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> I guess so, the writer did too. <laughs> perhaps. I mean, it, a lot of Doctor Who has always been political, in a sense, so it's no For surprise sure. That um, that they that they utilize some po- uh, political ideology ideology in this particular one. I did appreciate how, like at the end, the doctor like made her explain the situation, and she went through the like, well, it didn't start out this way; it just got out of control. Because I was like, because the whole time I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Why would anyone think that going around murdering people would make people happy? <laughs> <laughs> you know. Well, um, you know, it would take care of the unhappiness, you know, in the population. Yeah. I so. mean, it gives you an idea of Helen's reasoning, which is obviously extreme, extremely flawed. But Yeah, but at least it was something, and, like, I really appreciated having that. You're not turning yeah. unhappiness into happiness. You're taking all potential future happiness and unhappiness away. Yeah. It, it's very, um, you know, I feel like there was a callback to this in uh, later Peter Capaldi episode, um, Smile, where you have the, the robots are essentially have the same mission as the people do here of like, oh, you're unhappy, let's get rid of you. Yeah. It, it wasn't the same, but you know. It, it was, I mean, I don't think it would. I think the plot line for this story actually was a little bit better than Smile. Um but the execution may be the problem here is that it is a kind of a cheap motif. Now, the lighting at least was interesting because you're supposed to have this brilliantly bright, happy motif, yet the lighting suggests that this is a very dark society, which makes sense because a lot of the workers in all these factories, they're like really struggling to survive. And it's very hard to be happy when the conditions of work and the conditions of life are horrible detrimental indeed but you know it's interesting because you know happiness is really in the eye of the beholder as well and i think we see some even discrimination a little bit in this episode where some people are like clearly unhappy and you know automatically they're taken out and some people you know pretty indicatively are not happy by their facial expressions by the situations by the words that they say um and you know it doesn't it seems to be like oh well they said that they were happy so yeah so I wonder how much of it is really like a a thread of like you know you really need to act all that happy versus it is just like oh by the way I am happy yeah yeah fascism is weird 
<laughs> especially candy happiness fascism. Yeah, okay, so, like, that was weird. That whole thing of just this guy's like, yeah, so, you know, I brought these bones from my other planet where I created this horrible virus by accident, and... Uh, and then, like, I made a bunch of candy around him, and then he developed a mind of its own and became, you know, the royal assassin. You know, these things happen. Like, <laughs> I mean, just, like, back up a step, dude. How did you animate that thing of candy and hunks of metal and plastic? Well, you know, viruses and circumstances, this, this stuff happens in the future times of outer space pretty routinely, Shelby. I mean, you just kind of have to go with the flow. I mean, we could nitpick everybody's life story here but these things just happen i think it's it's a bigger question of what why why did he you know choose to and you know just stay around you know that that candy in terms of those hot devices it seems like his only weakness it's like i will be right next to my only weakness i have no weaknesses other than this thing right next to me (laughs) yeah well gilbert m's kind of an interesting character to begin with um He's, uh... Is that the guy who made the Candyman? Yes. He definitely has a has a flamboyant kind of character. But he also is, um... I mean, it's kind of interesting, because the interplay between him and, and his creation, or robot, or whatever you want to call it, is kind of interesting, because he's like, well, without me, you can't exist, and we kind of need each other. And there's this whole interplay of... I need me and you need me kind of thing. And the Candyman kind of agrees with that. Um, I do question, though, how did the Candyman even come about, like Colin asked earlier? It's like, is this an entity that's strictly a robot, so he's all programmed and, and, uh, and whatnot, or programmed to learn or learn how to make sweets along the way? Or is this something that he acquired after he was made and kind of created this kind of learning kind of robot that's I don't know I'm I'm rambling here it's a good question <laughs> yeah but it's it's just like I mean that part of it would have been more interesting if uh, if the character was explored a little bit more now interestingly enough the BBC actually got into trouble for having the Candyman because the Uh-oh. way it looks uh, it looks very much like Bassett's kind of uh, icon, um, which was basically a man or creation out of candy. Oh, I didn't realize that. Um, now it's like so, a lemon head, isn't it? So the BBC actually, yeah, I think, well... Look, it, kind of, it looks like a lemon head to me, but it's a little, little face. <laughs> but anyway, the, but the BBC actually had to promise never to use the candy man after this, so that's why they killed him off. Otherwise, they could have probably kept him around for with uh, Gilbert M. Well, thank God for lawsuits. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> honestly, once you bring him in, it's, it's not quite like the Daleks that keep learning and have their hive mind and everything else. It's like, we have the lemon juice, man. We have it now. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, you'd think the doctor would walk around with cleaning solution if it takes out Cybermen, but he doesn't. Yeah. I mean, the Candyman was one of those creations where I think the the concept was good, but the execution of the overall aesthetic was what where they went wrong. Now the voice was pretty rather creepy, and seeing this like creature all colorful and and candy like turn into something that's so sinister. That's where I guess there is a little bit of intrigue and there's a little bit of that, okay, let's entice the kids in and then kill them right off the bat. 
So, but it, like, if it's that close to you know the Bassett's logo, like, I mean, it sounds like it was a, like an intentional satire. I mean, yeah, I, I think I think this whole entire story is just an intentional satire. So, I mean, why not? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, also the the chances of someone from from England or from Great Britain being inspired by Bassett's trademark makes some sense. I mean, why wouldn't they? So, maybe a little too inspired. Yeah, Bassett should be flattered. They should consider themselves darn white privileged and honored for the pleasure <laughs> to have such a Candyman likeness out in the culture. But hey, that that's a just... villain that kills people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that might be where they draw the line. Hey, I, I think in today's culture, it's dynamic, it's fun, and it would make a difference. I think you know, six months from now, we'll see the Joker selling you know sugary cereal to kids, and they'll <laughs> eat it up and they'll love it. They're probably already doing that. <laughs> we also have to mention um, Joseph C., who is the husband to Helen Yeah, a. he was interesting. Very, very... Um, it's almost like he, in order to subdue his own fear or, or like loathing of what Helen a. is actually doing to all these poor people, is that he just kind of goes to the happy side himself and just doesn't really pay much attention. So it's kind of like a, a self-protective kind of... Well, yeah, I mean, like, he was clearly, you know, abused by his overly controlling wife. And well, he's a C and not a B, so that says it right there. Well, yeah, and, you know, and I think it also kind of lends itself to the rest of Helena's society where we see the two, you know, men complaining about all the women get all the good jobs, they get all the good guns, and you do see that because you see, like, women are the primary members of the Happiness Patrol and everything, and you see how she treats her husband. So there's, like, a lot of... Uh, you know, man hate going on in this society as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So, do, do we think this is a misogynistic message, uh, or do we think it, it's a an example of misandry? You know, what, what do we think is the the message, the moral that comes off of this story? You know, I actually or, don't. Or, should, or is that reading too much into I it? I think that's reading too much into it. I think they were just trying to devise a society, um, and put a twist on it by having women be in charge, but then they made it exactly like a society where men are in charge, except for the genders were swapped. <laughs> so it didn't really actually say anything. <laughs> well, and then also the men are the ones that get the last word because they're the ones that escape in the shuttle and go off and have their own adventures. There. Yeah, but that would be something that might typically happen in a Doctor Who story where the men are in charge and then the, like, the you know, verbally abused wife gets away. <laughs> Yeah, I just I guess we just see a lot of you know uh, societies where men are in charge, and or you know there's you know some sort of a, a clear division or, or sharing of power. We see the good, we see the bad, but usually, but when we see the matriarchy, it's a it's much of a darker, you know, and, and harsher reality than you know the 1980s were as far as I you know have a handle on them. Well, there's also this concept that that true power corrupts. You've got like characters like Daisy Kay that just think that they run the place and they, they can walk all over everybody, including and Helen A as well. And then you've got like Priscilla P who's been kind of demoted and is in the waiting zone and in charge of just standing there making sure people stay there waiting. And she's kind of upset about it, but not like in a bad way because she's truly trying to be part of the Happiness Patrol. But I think she's an interesting character because she actually 
she's so dedicated to the happiness patrol itself that she'll even go and turn on her own kind if that she thinks that they are going against um, the the rules and regulations. Uh, so you, it, it's there's so many dynamics with some of these characters, and granted, they're not all the best characters. <laughs> they're kind of one. A lot of them are one dimensional, but it's still the potential's there. It was definitely interesting, and I thought that, you know, a lot of the depictions of a dystopian society were very well done, and, like, the ways that they would be like, oh, no, 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 this isn't a prison, this is a waiting zone or whatever, because, like, you know, you always, like, fascists do that. They'll rename things to make it sound better when everyone knows what it is. It's not a prison, so we can just leave? Like, well, if you can, we'll kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Or otherwise you stay here and get tortured by horrible jokes. (laughs) Well, I I thought the other thing that was interesting in this, and it makes a lot of sense of just the way the society was structured, you know, anyone who talked with authority, everyone else would kowtow to because what if they actually are in charge? Good heavens, and the doctor taking advantage of that, I think, was... You know, that was just great. Well, and you yeah. could really see how that, that would work. Well, and also st- it started off with Trevor Sigmund doing that, where right. he's going around and trying to be in charge of the tallying up of everybody and the and just making sure that he that he can interview the different people mm-hmm. to see where they're at and how they're feeling. Um, but he seems to be in on the whole, oh, it's okay to murder people. It, that's not a big deal. <laughs> I, for one, think it's a big deal. <laughs> The, thanks, Colin. <laughs> well, you know what else is a big deal in this episode that we haven't gotten to? What? The bomb diggity himself, Helen A's little wolf spine creature. Fifi. Yeah, the little werewolf possum thing. It seems like they spent all their money on that one little dog-like creature. Fifi was a, was a G-thing baby and worth it. I mean, creature of the week, I'm surpassing Candyman. It's going to Fifi. In my I mean, mind. like, I kept expecting there to be more to it. Like, <laughs> that, it's just it's just a, a loyal, awesome kind of pet that anybody would want to welcome into their home. This started though the whole idea of animatronics <laughs> being in Doctor Who in a better way than it had been before, and so Fifi's actually compared comparatively speaking is one of the more advanced technological. But uh, I feel effects. like they could have so easily done all of that stuff with a puppet. It would, but it would have been obvious that it was a puppet. And so I think that's where the they wanted to try and so do something that looked somewhat decent. Although I will admit, Fifi is kind of an odd character or creature. <laughs> Not to mention the whole story seems a bit odd. Yeah, there just seemed to be a little bit of like piecemeal like stuff in here. <laughs> yeah, just kind of throwing in for flavor. You know, I, I think there's like whole you know characters or even races that, <laughs> that you think you know are going to have a big impact and are really glossed over in the story. It's just kind of like, oh, these are the natives in the planet. Or, yeah, this is just, you know, my pet Fifi, who I love. I think part of it may be the direction. I think there are bits of this that seem very choppy. Like when the doctor actually goes off and has that amazing scene with the two snipers where he actually tells them to end his life and they can't, and he just takes their guns away. Um, It's definitely, obviously, that's a big message on weapons and guns. Um, but it it also kind of enhances the doctor's uh, no gun policy anyway. But that scene just seemed like it was kind of like out of nowhere. It just the doctor just happens to be able to get up to where the snipers are, 
it just seems a bit odd. And it just seems like a balcony. So it's like, okay, so anybody could have been up there. <laughs> Not anyone. He's the doctor. I think oh, it's yeah. more like yeah, no one else was allowed to be up there, and it didn't seem like there were a whole lot of people left. So it just seemed a little bit odd. And, and the fact that they were trying to snipe, they were going to be killing off these kind of low lives that were kind of marching for peace and for sadness, and they didn't even see them, even though they're snipers. They couldn't well, see they them. They killed Joyce. Yeah, they killed Joyce. I don't know. It just it just felt very choppy throughout a lot of the episodes, yeah. and things feel felt it felt like it was a little rushed, and that's probably because this was only three episodes versus was it four. Supposed to be four parts. Was there some, a lot left on the editing floor that we missed out on? I don't honestly know too much about Happiness Patrol behind the scenes, so I'm. It may be one of those that actually does have. I, I'm pretty sure that the there will be an extended version for season twenty five as there was for every story from season 24. Um, there's a lot of that was cut during the seasons, and I think because they were cutting out episodes, because um, they could only do 14 episodes, because the BBC didn't want it that way. Well, I mean, like, I think also, maybe, like, it, would, would, it wouldn't have been cutting and editing. This would have been in, like, the beginning of the story phase. Like, if they had decided to make it a two-episode thing and they cut out some of this random stuff that was thrown in there, then it might have been, you know, very streamlined and, you know, compelling like story. Yeah. Well, talking about compelling and, and all these other ideas, maybe we should actually rate this story. Should we? I don't want to go first. Alright, well, I'll do my best to take, you know, a, a bit of a um, happiness blast at it. Okay. But I, I enjoyed this episode. I thought it did have a lot going for it. Um, I do have a bias against a lot of classic stories, but I have to say, you know, this this 80s line and vibe that we have going, um, you know, I know we just saw a remembrance of the Daleks the other day. It, these are um, good stories. I, I like, you know, having Ace in the mix. I think she's a, a fantastic foil for the Doctor. And I think we saw some other good foils for the Doctor in this story as well and some other dynamic characters. Um, we talked about some choppiness. There were some things that fell flat, some things that didn't make sense. Um, I think that there's a lot of good and there's a lot of, you know, interest here. I think there's a reason why, you know, it may be iconic, you know, to some degree that you'd come back to and you, you know, might see an image and be instantly transported into here. Um, but also, I've, I've seen a lot of other better episodes. Um, for me, this is going to get a 6 out of 10. All right. Um... Yeah, I think one thing that uh, we didn't mention earlier was I, I really loved the scene where um, Ace, you know, gets really mad and wants to, you know, go punch that <laughs> that obvious patrol people. And, and Yeah, thank you. Um, and the doctor, like, stops her and she's just like, I want to make them hurt. And the doctor's like, don't worry, we will. <laughs> I thought that was a great scene. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I agree uh with Colin, a lot of it. It was choppy. It was a little thrown together. It, um, there was a lot that didn't quite sit right, but I enjoyed it. It was, it was a very, you know, it was a gripping story. I am also going to give this a 6 out of 10. Hmm. 
one I think one character we forgot to mention was Earl Sigma, who actually was the harmonica player. Oh yeah, he was I, great. I think he was probably one of the we best. Didn't, we didn't talk about Earl. Yeah, I think he was the best character in this whole thing. Um, I would. I, this story is one of those that is kind of not in my best remembered. Um, it came. It came out during a time where I was a little upset with Doctor Who, anyway, especially after season twenty-four, um, and the whole painting the TARDIS pink thing just kind of threw me off. Um, obviously, it was a, a plot point, but it, it was just like, ugh, why would why would you do that? <laughs> um, this, I don't know. This story is definitely a mixed bag for me. I'm gonna give this a 5.5 out of 10. I think it had great potential, and I think it fell short both with direction, some of the acting, um, some of the characters, like I said, were kind of one-dimensional. And I think there's just a lot of things that that could have been better handled. And certainly the overall look and design, this was definitely the in-studio, let's throw as little money as possible at it. Um, and like I said, they probably spent all their money on Fifi trying to make sure that it worked. Um, and the world's slowest go-kart. Yeah, the world's slow- Oh, yeah, the go-karts. Oh, my gosh, let's not even go there. Let's, that, that was ridiculous. It's like, why? Why even try? They couldn't afford long enough hallways in the studio. I mean, Actors love to defuse bombs. Even the go-karts or whatever they were in Vengeance on Veros moved faster than these things. Um, yeah, they could they could walk it away at the same speed. <laughs> they also tried to make them look like they were armored because they had these kind of mesh wire things on them, but yet you could easily get any firepower through that mesh no matter what, and it looked like you just tear it off to begin with. I don't know, I just... Yeah, the production was pretty bad. So 5.5 out of 10, I, I definitely give the story credit, not so much the production value. All right. Well, that's all for tonight, folks. Oh, and I should say we're recording this on the day that Queen Elizabeth II has passed. So rest in peace and, um, and yeah, very sad day. 70 years of ruling, 96 years of life. Yes, a, definitely a lifetime of, of intrigue and power and, and a lot of um, helpfulness. She did help a lot of, try and help a lot of people. She definitely had a rocky yeah. reign, but, I mean, she for 70 years, it wouldn't be rocky. A lot like the doctor when you describe it that way. Yeah, do, yeah. do, do you think that, uh, do you think that Doctor Who's next episode is going to say something about it? I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, she's, I mean, the character of Elizabeth II has been in Doctor Who. Elizabeth II was a huge Doctor Who fan. Um, matter of fact, she actually met most of the doctors during the 50th anniversary, and um, oh, nice. she even got to knight, uh, I believe she knighted um, John... Um, Pershway? Elton John? No, 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 no. Uh, no, the other John. War Doctor, John. Hurt. John, John Hurt, thank you. Um, he was knighted, Sir John Hurt. Um, I think he's the only doctor who... Oh, well, main actor that that has been knighted. There's been a couple others, but that are lesser actors. But I think Sir Timothy Dalton is there, and then uh, whoever played the master in in David Tennant's era, the older master, Yana. Oh. Yeah. 
any rate, um, have a good night, everyone. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see or hear from you later. Bye. Bye, y'all.